the summer of Psalms, the summer of, of Psalms, and, and what we've been trying to do is understand how does God feel, and how should we feel in response to God, in response to his word, in response to the hope that we have in Christ, how should we feel, right, and again, as Baptists, we're uh, often, I don't know how much we study other denominations, we're kind of the ones who just kind of sit there straight face. I don't know if you notice. I can see you when I'm up here singing. It's true. The stereotype holds true even here. And so how should we feel? What should our emotions be? What should be going on inside of our hearts as we think about God and as we contemplate who he is and his great love for us? That should make us feel a certain way. But let's look at this psalm, Psalm 51. The title of the psalm says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and behold, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Father God, we thank you this morning for the words of David here, presented to us in Psalm 51. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would uh, open up our minds this morning, open up our hearts to your word. We pray, Lord, that because we've been here this morning, because of the words of David in Psalm 51, that we would leave here changed, that we would know how to think and feel and live and rejoice. Father, we need you to do this. We cannot do this ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, this, uh, this morning, uh, the, the title for my sermon is Our Position Without God. Our Position Without God. And then next week will be Our Position With God. And we're, we're going to look at this psalm. It uh, divides nicely into two halves. But it, it opens here with the heading of the psalm uh, to the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This superscription, which not all psalms have it, this is part of the scriptures, and it invites us in to, to read the psalm in the light of David's current predicament, in the, current, in the light of David's awful sins. You, you, you know the story, don't you? 
See, one afternoon in the, in the spring of the year, David uh, was walking on the roof of his palace, and suddenly he sees a woman in the courtyard below his palace. She was, she was bathing herself. He noticed right away that she was very beautiful. This attracted him. So he sent someone to her to check in. Who is this woman? Who is this beautiful woman? The report comes back. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The wife of Uriah should have been enough for David. She was married to somebody else. But that did not stop the kings in those days. The ancient Near Eastern kings, they seen something. They wanted it. It was theirs. And so it was with David here. He wanted this beautiful woman for himself. And so we read in 2 Samuel 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 4. So David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Then she returned to her house. Notice David's sin here. Premeditated adultery. You see, a few months later, Bathsheba will send David a three-word message. I am pregnant. This, of course... Causes David to wonder, uh, uh, what, what, do, what do I do here? You see, David's adultery was about to become very public. And the penalty for adultery, according to God's law in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, is death. So what, does he, what should he do? David, in his palace, he's thinking, he, he comes up with a plan. He would, he would try to hide his sin. And so we read in 2 Samuel, so David sent word to his general Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. This is Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. David wanted Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that he and everyone else would think that the baby was Uriah's. But it was a time of war, and Uriah was a, a righteous man, and the loyal soldier refused to go home. As he said, to lie with my wife, he, he, he stayed the night at the king's house with all the servants of his lord. And so David tried again the next night to get Uriah to, to go home to his house, but, but Uriah would refuse to go. You can imagine the pressure building on this king, on this David. How would he now hide his sin of adultery? And so he weighed his options overnight, and he came up with a frightening solution. You see, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to, by the hand of Uriah, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. You see, David made Uriah, of all people, carry his own death warrant to the front lines and there Uriah died. Premeditated murder to hide the sin of premeditated adultery. You see, if anyone was ever to be punished, it was David. For this afternoon stroll on the roof led him eventually to break fully half of the Ten Commandments. David killed, David committed adultery, David stole, David bore false witness, and David coveted. But it's in the scriptures that we find David lives. More so, we find that David was forgiven. So we come to Psalm 51, and we read, Psalm 51 is in the Bible to assure us that God, because of who God is, not because of who David was, 
But because of who God is, because of his steadfast love and abundant mercy, he will forgive even the most heinous sins if people ask with a contrite heart. Notice how David begins the psalm here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, amazingly, he begins with a list. Not with, a, not with a list of his sins. He begins with, with God. Notice he, he doesn't start by like, listen, I'm awful, God, therefore forgive me. He says, no, 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 have mercy on me, oh God. He begins with God. He begins with an appeal to God's character. You see the three words that he uses here in one verse, words like mercy, or steadfast love, or abundant mercy. You see, this mercy refers to God's grace or unmerited favor. And the second word, steadfast love, is God's covenant loyalty. And the third word, abundant mercy, can be often translated as motherly compassion. David begins the psalm by declaring that God is a God of grace, a God of covenant loyalty, a God of motherly love and compassion. Perhaps Jesus had this psalm on his mind when he told the parable of the prodigal son. The son who went to a far country and squandered all of his living, uh, all of his wealth on wild living. But then what happens? He comes to his senses and he says, I will get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. This is the allusion to Psalm 51. And against you, you alone have I sinned. You see, the son knew the character of his father. He knew that his father would uh, at least take him back in as a, as a servant. And yet he takes him in as a son. He knew his father would forgive him. And so David begins here with the psalm relying on the character of who God is. He begins with a reminder that God is a God of mercy, steadfast love, and motherly compassion. You see, it's on the basis of this character. It's on the basis of God's merciful character that God, that David has any chance at forgiveness here. After he described God's character with these three profound words, he begins to list his own offenses. Notice with three different words. Words like transgression, iniquity, and sin. You see, the end of verse 1, blot out my transgressions. This is a word of, of a potent word. You see, it's not just merely to transgress or to step over the boundaries of God's law. Like, you and I do this all day long. Like, you probably did it driving in here this morning when you went 65 and a 55 uh, speedway. Like, that is, this is what David has in mind here when he says, blot out my transgressions. He's not talking about speeding. Right? The picture behind transgressions in this psalm is is active rebellion. Like when children rebel against their parents. or, Or people rebel against their king. You see, David was not merely broken, has not merely broken God's law. He rebelled against God. So in verse 2, David adds two more words for his offenses. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This iniquity is a deliberate act of going astray, deliberate deviation from the right path. And he says this third word here, this sin. Sin evokes the picture of people aiming at a target and missing the mark. They fall short of the goal God has set for them. They fail to reach it. So here David has in this this poetry for us three words to describe God's character and now three words to describe David's offenses. Transgressions, iniquity, 
and sin. Notice all the three terms here seem to be comprehensive. Such that the psalmist's confession is far-reaching and complete. He's not, he's not trying to hide anything anymore. He's been called out. He realizes he's fallen short. David looks back at his life and he sees various kinds of sin and more sin and more sin. And he wants to be washed. He wants to be cleansed from all and any kind of sin. And so in pleading for forgiveness, David again uses now three other words. Words like blot out or wash me and cleanse me. These three words come from the rituals God had established in the forgiveness of sin. You see, David requests in verse 1, blot out my transgressions. This means to wipe away as one simply wipes a dirty dish. There may be more involved in this image. You see, as the final judge, God keeps the records of all sins. He writes them in a book, as it were. And so David here, he says, he, he asked God to, to go to that book, God, of, of my sins and, and blot them out, wipe them away. And in verse 2, David adds, wash me thoroughly. Referring to the way people washed laundry in the old days. You have seen the pictures, right, of women in the riverbed placing dirty clothes on rocks of running water. Then they, what do they do? They step on them. They tread on them. They literally walk on it, rub it, slap it against the rocks above the water until it is clean. And so David asked God to wash him thoroughly. He has a third word in verse 2, cleanse me from my sin, referring to washing that makes people ritually clean so that they can appear in God's presence. You see, sin is like leprosy. It renders people unclean. They can no longer appear before a holy God in his temple anymore. The cleanse me from my sin. Ask God for such cleansing that he can go and worship God again in the temple. You see, David combines these three different words for sin with three different words for forgiveness. His request to God to blot out his transgressions, to thoroughly wash him from iniquity and to cleanse him from his sin. You see, the problem of David's sin, sin, and sin can only be solved by washing, washing, and washing. Why is he, why is he repeating all these words? Well, he explains for us in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David says, I, I, I know my transgressions. I don't just acknowledge it. I don't just admit it. I know my transgressions personally. In fact, he says, my sin is ever before me. Like, it's always there. I always know that it's right there, right below the surface. All the times I've failed, all the times I've transgressed your law, it's always there. I'm always aware of it. And he says, my guilt is wearing me down. This is why I need cleanse so badly. But there's a more important reason than just David always knowing that it's there. You see, in verse 4, he gets to the heart of it. He says, against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David realizes he sinned against God. This is why he needs cleanse so badly. Now, if we know the story, we might pause and ask, is, is that true? 
Did David only sin against God? Did he not also sin against Bathsheba by sleeping with her? Did he not also sin against Uriah by having sex with his wife and then murdering him? Of course, he also sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. You see, sin is not just this little thing that is just between you and God. Rather, sin has social consequences. This comes clear in the next line. He says, I've done evil in your sight. You see, when we hurt our neighbors, that is evil in God's sight. When we do not love our neighbors as ourselves, that is evil in God's sight. In in verse 14, which we'll get to next week, David will confess to his murder when he says, deliver me from bloodshed, O God. But the point David is making when he says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned, is that ultimately sin is an affront to the Holy God. You see, sin is not just between you and your neighbors. Fathers, when you provoke your children to anger, that is not just a sin against your children. Husbands, when you uh, do not love your wife as Christ loved the church, that is not just a sin against your wife. Wives, when you uh, disrespect your husbands and, and buck his authority, that is not just a sin against your husband. It is a sin against God. You see, sin is not only breaking God's law, but rebelling against our King. And so at its deepest level, when you and I sin, we sin ultimately against God. And for that reason, David says, it's, it's you, God. Against you, you alone have I sinned. David concludes in verse 4, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. You see, God is the final judge, and he can rightly declare us guilty and sentence us to whatever sentence he deems appropriate. Even if God decides on the death penalty, God would be blameless. In contrast to the blamelessness of God, though, David acknowledges in verse 5 that he is in the grip of sin. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. David admits that his sinful acts spring from a deeper source. He was born guilty, born with iniquity. And David moves back even further to the moment of his conception a sinner when my mother conceived me. You see, being a sinner from the very beginning was no excuse for David's acts. David here points to the origin of his sinful acts. You see, sin is a part of the human condition. To be human means that you are indeed a sinner. We're born into this. We are infected with sin from birth, even from the moment of conception. You see, we inherit the sinful nature from our parents as they inherited it from theirs. Paul will actually use this to trace the sinful condition all the way back to the first man, Adam. He says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So David's aware. He's aware that he only, that not only needs to be cleansed from the stain of particular sinful acts of Bathsheba and Uriah, such as adultery and murder, he also needs to be delivered from who he is. Like, he needs to be delivered from the sinful nature with which he was born into. You see, sin wells up within each of us. Sin's fountainhead is our depraved inward being. You see, all humans are wired this way. 
This is why outside of Christ, and if you look inside of culture, everybody's trying to come up with solutions to the greatest problem of humanity. They're trying to come up with how do we fix this mess that we're in. And here's the thing, outside of Christ, there is no solution. Capitalism is not the solution. Communism is not the solution. Atheism is not the solution. Like men and women, will, if left to their own devices, will not naturally progress towards this sort of utopian society. You say, well, well why not, Pastor? It's because at our very core, we are sinful. This is why David continues in verse 6. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. You see, God desires truth on the inside. This essential quality of reliability, which is necessary for a proper relationship with God. God desires truth, or we could say trustworthiness, faithfulness on our part. So David who's a man after God's own heart, he sees the sin within him and he wonders, where is this faithfulness? Where is this trustworthiness? Because when he looks within, all he finds is corruption and deceit. He's helpless. He cannot change his sinful condition. He realizes that only God can do that. Therefore, he again appeals to God, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. God has to teach him wisdom in his inward being. You see, wisdom is this practical knowledge that enables us to navigate the difficulties and temptations of life successfully. Uh, and, and the Proverbs would open by saying that wisdom is and begins with the fear of the Lord. And so David, he does this. He, he asks God to teach him wisdom, but there's more. David needs more than forgiveness for his sinful acts. He needs more than wisdom to chart through the course of life. He realized that he needs deep cleaning. Cleaning that will go beyond the surface of his inner being. Therefore, he requests in verse 7, notice, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, this hyssop was this shrub type of vegetation. And what they would do is they would, they would use it to sprinkle water on folks. People who become unclean, they would come to the temple and they would take the hyssop and, and put it in the water and they would sprinkle on the person, uh, the people who would become unclean, who could no longer appear before God's presence. And once cleansed, they could then again worship God in his temple. And so David's asking, he says, do this for me, God. Men and women, the folks of the temple, they can't do this. I need you to do it, God. Purge me. This deep cleaning that David needs, purge me, can be translated as purify me from sin. Or more literally, unsin me. Or de-sin me. Only God can de-sin us. Only God can perform this deep kind of cleansing that you and I and everyone you know needs. This purge me with hyssop and then we shall be clean. Notice the next line vividly shows the result. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What a transformation David's looking for here. David's not simply feeling bad about some of the choices he's made. Like, he's utterly broken. He realizes he has nowhere else to turn. He says, God, if you wash me, if you do it, God, then I will be whiter than the snow. 
He knows how dark his inner self is, but if God will purge him, if God will descend him, then he will be whiter than snow, completely clean. Not one dark stain left on the outside or the inside. God himself has promised in Isaiah chapter 1, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. And having confessed his many sins now and begged God for forgiveness, David next asks, that he may move on to taste the joy of God's salvation again. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. This joy and gladness that David's mentioned, he, he wishes to hear probably refer to the joy and gladness that could be heard on the feast days at God's temple. You see, Psalm 122 verse 1 speaks of this gladness. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is what David wants. More than anything, he wants to rejoice with the people of God in the house of God. But right now, he's far removed from joy and gladness. He's a broken man. He's in agony. He's distraught. And so David prays, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. If God will purge his sin and make him whiter than snow, he can again worship God at his temple with God's people. Then he will hear the joy and gladness of God's people again. Then he will rejoice. But his sin is still in the way. His sin is keeping him from that. And so in verse 9, he comes back one more time to his sins. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David asked God to turn his face away from his sin. Not to look. God, don't look over here. Instead of looking, instead of God looking at his sins, he asked God to again blot them out. All of his iniquities. Notice that this word, this, this blotting out, frames this whole first half. You see, blot out opens the psalm. And here we find it again in verse 9. It underscores what David's asking for in verses 1 through 9. He's asking God to wipe away all of his iniquities, to wipe his slate clean. If God blots out all of his iniquities, he'll be gone. His sins will disappear as if they were never committed. This is the, the meaning behind the first nine verses of Psalm 51. So I have three points of application for us and then we'll get out of here. Number one, we need to see ourselves as we truly are without God. Our position without God. I wonder, have you personally, you, ever felt like David feels in Psalm 51? You see, we live in a modern age which simply says your happiness is the most important thing. You pursue your happiness at any cost. You go, you get it. It's yours. Have we ever felt in our modern day and age that we need God to clean us up first? To, to wipe us clean. That we needed God to purify our lives, to give us a new heart and a new spirit. You see, one of the uses of the law of God is that it would teach us what sin actually is. The law of God is supposed to show us how far 
we've fallen short. And so if in Christian society in our day and age, we never talk about the law, we never say, here's God's standards for living, and we simply say, grace, 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 and we never understand that deep down without Christ we're broken and we are set apart, we are not uh, welcome in his presence. Have we ever felt this? We need to see ourselves as we truly are without God. Without God, you and I are broken. Without God, you and I are sinners all. Without God, you and I have no hope. Number two, we need to understand that there is nothing that we can do to clean ourselves up. David understood this. David realized that there was no amount of sacrifice he could do to make himself right with God. And yet in our day and age, we are often overwhelmed with the idea that somehow, as long as at the end of our lives, if the good outweighs the bad, then we'll be okay. It's not true. You see, when we sin, we should not think of our sin as something little, but something massive. We should see the world the way God sees the world and understand that there's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up. So number three and finally, we need to fall on the mercy of God. David does this. Have mercy on me, O God. David ran to the mercy of God. He did not run away. Think of your own life and the sin in your life. What do you do when you sin? Do you feel bad for a moment, wait a couple of days, and then suddenly the feeling of, of, of guilt and uh, the, the fact that you've broken God's law, does that simply just go away and then all of a sudden you're, you're fine again? What do you do when you sin? As an unbeliever, what do you do when you sin? Does your conscience tell you that I don't think this is right? As a Christian, what do you do when you sin? Does the Satan whisper in your ear, see, I knew you were a failure? You see, David, when when he was approached by Nathan the prophet, he could have simply hid away. And he shows up, points his finger at him, and says, You're the man. You're the one who's broken God's law. David at that moment had a couple options. He could have run away. He could have ignored it. He could have had Nathan executed on the spot. He's the king for crying out loud. He could have wallowed in his self-pity until the feeling subsided. Or he could turn to God. Turn to God. You see, the mark of a maturing believer is what we do when we sin. The mark of a maturing believer is that when they sin, they realize they can run to the Father. Not run from Him, not avoid Him, but run to Him. So we need to see ourselves as we truly are. We need to understand that we cannot clean ourselves up and we need to understand that we need to fall on the mercy of God. Listen, uh, if, if you're not a Christian in here, where else would you go? Like, where else would you find hope? 
Like, if you believe that all of life is simply in the the moment-to-moment existence of what we can see, and that when we die, like I did a funeral this past week for an older lady, uh, and there her family gathered around her, most of them uh, professing believers, uh, understanding that that, that they believe that that she is now in a better place. And uh, I I pray that that's true. But listen, if you're a non-believer, if you, like you say, you showed up here because someone said, hey, let's go get breakfast, but first they brought you to church, uh, and then you'll go get breakfast. Like, if you're here and you're like, this is all a sham, like, this is nuts, like, like, where's your hope? Is it in the fact that maybe when you die, that's simply it, non-existence, no thinking, no consciousness, no nothing? If that's where your hope is, then, then you've got a bigger problem than you realize, you see, because then the world is absolutely has no meaning. There's no basis for good or evil or justice, righteousness. If simply when we die, that's the end of our lives and there is nothing else. There is no grand reckoning, a day of judgment and a day of atonement. Then listen, then why not just do whatever you want? Since there are no ultimate consequences. You see, no one actually lives like this. We say we believe this. We say we think this is all there is. And yet we don't actually live that way. But for you Christians, what do you, what do, you do when you sin? Where is your hope when you sin? Is your hope in the fact that maybe, uh, that, that perhaps after sinning, that maybe you can do some good stuff. Maybe you can give some extra money to the church. Maybe you can go volunteer at a soup kitchen. Are you hoping in yourself that you can somehow wipe yourself clean? Our hope is in Christ. You see, when Christ died on the cross, all of your sins, past, present, and future, was paid for. It's what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. Like positionally, you and I, when Christ looks at us, when God the Father looks at us, he does not see broken people. You see, when Christ looks at us, or when God the Father looks at us, He sees the perfection of Christ. So positionally, right now, when God sees you, He sees His daughter, He sees His Son that He loves, even when you sin. But existentially, like in our day-to-day living, we've got to walk this out. And so we hold on the one hand that God sees us. He, he loves us perfectly. He sees us just as if we've never sinned. He sees us justified and sanctified and, and glorified ultimately. But on the other hand, we're dealing with this sin inside of us. This sin is still somehow, even though I trusted Christ, I've loved the Lord, yet I still fall and I still sin and I still screw up. So how do I... I balance these things. Listen, we fall on the mercy of God. Let's pray. God of mercy, you know us better than we know ourselves. And you still love us. Wash us from all of our sins this morning, we pray. Create in us clean hearts and strengthen us by the Spirit that we may praise you, Father, Through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.